Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Welcome to God's Planning. I'm Father Gregory Pine, and I'm joined here by Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. How are we doing, Father Jacob? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. We're here at the uh, beginning of the spring semester, and we are gearing up tomorrow for the March for Life. So as we speak, or as you listen, uh, students and parishioners and folks from all over the states and some beyond are descending on Washington, D.C. to take part uh, in the March for Life. Uh, in commemoration, or I guess um, as a kind of anti-commemoration, I suppose, of the Roe v. Wade decision. And um, I suppose, I mean, it's a big, it's a big moment for the American church. It's, it's kind of a huge reunion, but also a celebration of life. So anything in particular you're looking forward to this weekend, people coming through? Yeah, getting to see people, getting to, getting to chat with people. Hopefully the weather is not <laughs> awful because it seems like the, whatever, eight or nine <clears throat> marches that I've been to, the weather is either uber muddy and wet and you're kind of like sloshing through that or mm. it's frigid and cold and snowy so here's hoping yeah you know? yeah it's always it's always a decision to make what what shoes you'll wear uh it's a, if it's a very serious fashion decision because you've got your nice black shoes you know because everyone out here has only black shoes or you know hiking boots uh you got your black shoes but those are your those are your everyday shoes and if they get devastated by mud on the national mall the chances that you bounce back looking good tomorrow are it's not happening yeah it's pretty low and then the white socks i mean that soaks right oh yeah through. and then you and then you get like a nice six inch bottom of the habit mud stain ring which is which is the farthest thing from fast fashionable that you can imagine but then the other option is to wear clunky hiking boots, and that's just to kind of give up on fashion from the outset. So. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, you got to be you got to be ready to commit if you're going to go in the boots. I often wear boots to be honest, just because it's uh, it's dangerous territory for a, a white habit out there and yeah. white socks and yeah. black dress shoes. So. And yeah, yeah, I you know it's it's a calculated decision every time for me. I go out in the backyard, I test the firmness of the ground. I take like a kind of wind sample. I check in with Capital Weather Gang, make sure that I'm really, I really know what I'm getting into. Because if I uselessly wear hiking boots when I could have worn black shoes, I just, it's hard for me to bounce back. I just Social brood over it. suicide. Exactly, yeah. I, I brood over it for the next year. So uh, in addition to your shoe choice, you know, as we prepare for the March for Life, we thought it'd be a good way to get ready, to think just a little bit about what it means to be pro-life or uh, why it is so often associated with the Catholic faith that one is a proponent for life uh, from conception until natural death. So uh, maybe just a way of kind of getting into it, we can talk a little bit about the the situation in the United States and how it kind of plays out both in faith circles and in political circles. I think a lot of people's first association with the March for Life is kind of with the culture war. So what are some things that come to mind, or how were you first introduced to the theme? Maybe you know, in public school or at church, or what? What were your first associations? I don't think growing up, I ever really had a um, a sort of explicit or kind of focused thought or experience with the pro life movement. I grew up Catholic, but um, not in a particularly um, observant or at least in these sort of ways. So I didn't. I didn't. For example, I did not know that. The pro-life march existed until I was, you know, in college, mm-hmm. and I didn't attend a pro-life march until I was in, um, 
until I was here as a Dominican. But it was it was never really something on my radar, which I think speaks to the culture, um, because you know I grew up in the Northeast and abortion is um, available and I would imagine quite regular. But it was never something, at least in my cultural circle, that uh, was was spoken about. It just seemed, I guess, for for those reasons, something to be relatively normalized in in kind of uh, the public mind. So uh, my experience, I guess, pretty limited on that front. When when we were kids, I, th- I don't remember the first time I went to the March for Life, but I was like one or zero or two or something like that. I was a wee, I was a wee lad. But this is, <laughs> there were some trips that we took that were long. And I remember them, you know, you know, you can, well, when you're a kid, if you wake up early, it's like, an apocalyptic mood for you because you're like, I am used to sleeping until the sun rises. It is dark outside. I'm very cold. I do not know where my mother is. Everything is bad. Um, so, you know, we take long car trips to Maine, to New York sometimes. But uh, but I remember always going to the March for Life involved waking up very early because you have your bus that you drive down 95 into the city and, uh, you know, everyone and their brothers on their way from every Catholic church up and down the eastern seaboard. And um, my just my association with it is wearing lots of clothing. <laughs> Is wearing lots of clothing, sitting in a Starbucks, uh, getting to choose what I ate for lunch, and then just being a very tired child. So, uh, but I suspect that most people come to it by, from a kind of you know culture war perspective, where you have the association with the Catholic Church that the Catholic Church is against abortion, it's against euthanasia, it's against same-sex marriage, it's against a couple of different things. So I think sometimes while people would like to be more well-disposed to the pro-life cause, sometimes they have in their mind a kind of polemical setting. And that can be, for some people, discouraging. I think some people really cotton to a fight and they're like, wait, there's a fight to be had? Let's fight. But then other people hear about a fight and they just don't, they don't want to fight others, you know, or they don't want to be thought a fighter. <clears throat> so I think that um, a good way to approach the whole pro-life question or a good way to approach the pro-life march is to think about a more embracing or more overarching uh, pro-life stance or pro-life theology or pro-life philosophy. So how about we kind of work our way into that? Um, I think the terms are often set in such a way that you're either pro-choice or you're pro-life. But a lot of people want to change the language so that it reflects the fact of abortion, right? Either you're for abortion or you're against abortion. What are some, I don't know, what are some of the ways in which the arguments come out? Or what are some of the ways in which people inveigh against each other? And, 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 and how is the language for you, you know, uh, of, of importance? I think first and foremost, it's, in, there, there, it's important to recognize that um, at least now, at least in, in kind of the culture and the conversations that we're able or unable to have now, um, the words that we choose either to use to either self-identify or identify others are often chosen in such a way um, as to kind of create a buffer or isolate. So we kind of put up our walls and we say we're with this group, I'm with the pro-life group, I'm with the pro or the anti-abortion group, and, and they, the other, are wholly um, opposite and sort of the evil enemy. And of course, abortion is an evil. So there, I'm not, you know, that's mm. not a downplaying of that, but it's just the use of kind of the, the words and the semantics that are that are around are often, I, I find, less used to convey ideas or points or try to win hearts or convince people um, and more of a sort of, it becomes kind of like a, a finger wagging, uh, wagging game. So um, this is not exclusive to, pro-life this is not exclusive to the abortion debate but 
I think can be a pitfall of it, it is a pitfall of sort of the common the common uh, debate over the issue, which then makes, uh, as you were saying, Father Gregory, makes people I think feel um, either they have to choose. They, they choose a camp based on an ideology or a, an association rather than based on the truth and are unwilling to engage with the arguments uh, either for or against a particular point. Yes, yeah, so I think a good way for us to proceed is not to water down our stance regarding life or to be any less pro-life, but to situate being pro-life within a wider ethic of life. So when some people try to do this, they'll, they'll argue as if all social issues were but a seamless garment and that all of these issues were to be taken whole cloth. So on the one hand, we hear people accuse Catholics of being one-issue people or a kind of tribalistic, uh, one-issue voters, for instance. And in order to respond to that criticism, in order to respond responsibly, and in order to respond generously, we need to take seriously a kind of wider ethic of life. But I don't think it necessarily, well, it certainly doesn't mean that we take on this seamless garment approach, because I think there is, we can, we can say that these life issues are related and that abortion is the most important because it represents an assault on life of catastrophic proportions. When you just think about the sheer numbers, like, you know, 50 million children having been aborted in the United States just in, you know, the last 50 years or less which is staggering. The, the thought of it is staggering. And often the comparison is made with genocide and, and rightly so. So I think what we want to say is we want to broaden the scope, but we don't want to water down our commitment to abortion as being of central importance. But so, so in, yeah, in, in what follows, we can just kind of take steps at laying a groundwork and maybe talking about um, a philosophy of life. <clears throat> so here's a, here's a way of working into it. Sometimes you'll be at the March for Life and you'll hear these different chants or cheers that people make, and, and many of them are good. Some of them are less so excellent. Uh, one of the ones that I've chosen to isolate for this particular moment is, we love babies, yes we do. We love babies, how about you? Okay, so I'm not making fun of or lampooning those who say this, but I think it's good to draw attention to how this can be heard by people who are not of our persuasion in this matter. What it sounds like is that the pro-life argument is for children, and it just wants children rather than to die, but, you know, it doesn't want them to die, it just wants them to live. But that the pro-life argument doesn't take account of other people, like the mother, for instance. So, um, in this instance, I think here of a study that was uh, described in a First Things article some years ago done by the Caring Foundation. And it describes how pro the pro-life movement can take more adequate account of the mother. And what it said was, the way that a mother often perceives the experience of an unplanned pregnancy is that it is an inevitable death. So either she chooses to have an abortion and the child dies, or she chooses not to have an abortion. And then she's got options. She can keep the child and then basically her future dies. You know, her plans for education or career die, or at least she perceives it as right, such. Right. Or she chooses to have the child put up for adoption. And then any hopes that she has of being a good mother or any security that she has for her future, those seem to her to die. Because she'll her first act as a mother will be, in her mind, to abandon her child. Or having a child out there whom she doesn't know and doesn't know her feel, leaves her feeling unsettled as to whether or not this child will end up finding her and will be upset with her for having put the child up for adoption, etc. So it's not so much a matter of this mother is making the choice whether her child lives or whether her child dies, but rather, who dies? So what would be like... So what would be ways in our rhetoric, what would be ways in our support for pro-life causes that we could take better account of those, you know, the child indeed, but the mother, the father, and other things, maybe things that you've seen in your ministry placements or stuff that you've come yeah. across along the way? The, I, 
I think the the point that you make is is good. I've you know I've heard it actually you know just walking down to the march. It's interesting walking, living in D.C. and kind of encountering people, whether you're going on the metro or like you know security guards around the federal buildings. Just the inner, the sort of conversations that you're that you're going uh, that are that are happening as you're even just walking to the march in the city that you live in. And I remember one year walking down a a security guard or I don't know if they were a police officer, but they were they were sort of outside one of the security booths at one of the federal buildings and asked, well, how are you, you know, pro-life if you don't, he asked this question, if you don't take into account, you know, the mother's life, which was, which led to a good conversation about like, well, you know, we're marching against Roe v. Wade today, but like that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't negate and anything else. But I think that, that, um, that interaction highlights exactly what you're saying. What of the other people involved? Um, that I think needs to be approached there, at least um, from our perspective, and, and in such a way that we can, you know, not just kind of tout nice things about mothers, but actually serve uh, serve those in need. And and through you know my first thought that comes to mind is Catholic um, pregnancy centers that can provide real options, but not just real options for in, in the medical sort of um, idea uh, or the medical world, but real options for um, spiritual and psychological care too. Because to pretend to negate that the pain and the suffering of, of women who have an unplanned pregnancy or this or that is, is sort of negligible and should sort of be swept aside and kind of, or whitewashed, um, is foolish. That, that's not sort of the holistic Catholic approach. Um, so that's, that's one, one thing that I think is very important to sort of capitalize on what it is that the Catholic Church offers um, people in need, not simply, um, not simply to exclude because of, of the, the evil of abortion. Um, that can be done on a professional level, but also on, on, on a community and individual and personal level. But that takes, I think, a, a cultural shift in our minds, but also in, in, the, wider, uh, in the wider public to be able to help and, and minister, minister to, to well. Hmm. All right, let's pick back up with this thought when we return, but now we're going to take a short break. So thanks for joining us for God's Planning, and we'll be back with you in a second. This is God's Planning. Get up to date on all our latest episodes at opeast.org slash godsplaining. And welcome back to God's Planning. Thanks for sticking with it. We're delighted you have. I thought maybe we could pick the conversation back up by talking about some people who do what Father Jacob Bertrand was describing and who do it well. So I think first there's um, a priest, I think he's of the Archdiocese of New York, Monsignor Riley, uh, whom is attributed with having been instrumental in the closing of tens of abortion clinics in the greater New York area. And it's not to say that one is a success by virtue of the fact that abortion clinics close where he prays. I think the fact of his being a success is testified to by how well he loves those women who pass through the doors. So his approach is very simple. It's non-threatening in any way, shape, or form. He doesn't even often speak to the women who pass by him. But he stands outside and he hands them rosaries and then just continues to pray. And what is most attractive or perhaps most unsettling for some about his witness is the fact that over half of the women who go into the abortion clinic, having received a rosary from his hand, will come out minutes later uh, dissolved in tears and asking him for help. And he's especially good and especially solicitous in setting these women up with the resources that they need to receive the child, 
to potentially raise the child or to put the child up for adoption. But what's most attractive is not the quality of his rhetoric or isn't the vehemence of his protest, but rather the testimony of his love. And you can see it in his face. Uh, so he's stood outside for dozens and dozens and dozens of hours. Mm-hmm. And his face, you can see there's a lot of, he has a lot of cancer in his face. So like, whatever, all kinds of tumors. And he, I mean, part of his nose has actually been removed. He had wow. a surgery to remove some cancer from wow. the end of his nose. So he's not, he doesn't look especially good on account of the fact that he has suffered for love of the thing. And, you know, he wears a hat and he wears sunscreen, but still, he's just outside so much, pounding the pavement. Uh, But the thing about him that is most attractive is the fact that he loves. And then I think, too, of another woman whose name I've forgotten, but it was in the news maybe in, it was like the summer of 2014, there was a Supreme Court case about buffers. So a lot of these clinics... There is a a zone in which you as a pro-life person cannot enter because it's seen as threatening or invasive or as trespassing. And they had passed a state law in Massachusetts that extended that buffer something like 30 feet or just a very, very wide, wide radius. So that way pro-lifers could not get access to women as they approached the clinic because they just had too big of a circumference to cover. And this woman uh, was you know, said that it was unconstitutional and the, the case made it all the way to the Supreme Court and the state legislation was struck down. But in the course of these conversations, a lot of people were arguing that she was, you know, um, terrible woman, that she was against reproductive rights, that she was against women's health, that she was against women, you know, period, that she was barbaric troglodyte. Uh, but what happens is that this woman, when she, woman, when she would greet uh, people as they entered the clinic, she would offer basically to raise their children. And, and some women took her up on it. So she had actually, these women had brought their children to term, they had delivered, and then she had taken the child into their home. That's incredible. Yeah, it's awesome. It's just super beautiful. So I think that like, when we, when we you know, when we encounter people like that, it's, it's more than just rhetoric. It's more than just, um, you know, the vehemence of argumentation. It's rather the, the quality of their love, which is most attractive and which most commends their testimony. I don't know. We've both had experience with the Sisters of Life. Um, I don't know if you can talk to your experience having encountered them here and there, but maybe something about what they do and how their life is attractive in this way. Yeah, yeah. I was, as you were talking, I was immediately thinking of the sisters. They're, they're pretty incredible. Um, they were founded in, you probably know the year. About 30 years ago, yeah, I think. Um, two, in, in New York City, in the archdiocese of New York, to um, basically address this issue to serve the community in such a way that they could promote a culture of life, but give assistance to women um, in need in these situations to give assistance to families in need, um, but also give assistance to babies. Um, There's, there's something uh, about, you know, when you see a sister of life kind of holding a baby, that's just like really powerful, really beautiful. Um, So they, they, their, their whole life is dedicated to promoting this, this culture of life um, and providing resources and, and really saving lives. And um, I've heard, you know, I don't know anybody directly, but sort of through the grapevine of, um, of stories, but just the way in which these sisters um, sort of extend themselves to offer options for women and really women who are often quite poor and, um, you know, left alone with nobody to help them, um, offer them a way, um, 
a way a way out, I guess, of sort of the despair that lies before them. So they do that in you know in cities around the country, these sorts of things, but are are really kind of a powerful witness because of what Father Gregory was was talking about, not because they are some sort of like political or social activist, but because they love the Lord and they they love the the gift of life and um, dedicate their lives to serving that really beautiful. I, I was reminded too of a story I heard uh, relatively recently that um, a young couple who had been praying outside of an abortion clinic as part of you know kind of their devotion, part of a group they belonged to, um, they were married but realized or learned that they couldn't conceive a child, and same sort of thing. Um, with the story that that you told that you know a woman went in she came out decided not to have the abortion but didn't know what to do and said if somebody would would take my baby i won't you know i i can i'll i'll carry him to term and so they said on the spot we'll take it you know so we'll take the baby so she um yeah she carried the baby to term and um but it's like a, a 30 second interaction you know, <laughs> to save a life of a child on a sidewalk really powerful so how about in the time that remains, let's just lay a little bit of a philosophical foundation. Don't be intimidated by the word, the, by the word philosophical, but just let's talk about this in terms of a philosophy of creation, something that we can all bring to prayer over the course of the next week or two. Uh, as we ask the Lord to convict us, perhaps, about ways in which we can be better of service in building up a culture of life in a way that's proper to our state, in a way that's proper to our age, in a way that's proper to our gifts and talents. Because I think sometimes you hear these inspiring stories and then you want to go over to like the nearest abortion clinic and offer to adopt a bunch of children. In our case, uh, we don't have sufficient rooms at the House of Studies, nor do I think we'd get permission to adopt children. Uh, <laughs> it's also hard to wear like a baby Bjorn carrier on your chest with a yeah, habit, you know. Yeah, for sure. You can't really, especially if you have to double down on the ergo babies. You know, like two small tots, one on the front, one on the back. It's just your your capoose gets all wrinkled. It's just there's no coming back from that. No, it's worse than the boots. It's worse again. <laughs> fashion suicide. Um, <clears throat> so, let's just talk a little bit about that. So. Life. Let's think about life, maybe using St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, at random, as a leading light for understanding how to wonder, or how, how best to, to think about life. So for St. Thomas, you have a theology of creation, which really gives a, a nice context for thinking about each thing as it is loved by God into existence. So God didn't need to create anything. He himself enjoyed boundless beatitude for all eternity and from all eternity. But in his goodness, he chose to create <clears throat> because he thought that we might like it. He thought that creation would enjoy the opportunity to share in his divine life. So maybe that's a good place to start with a, a theology of life is that all life is a gift because it's not necessary that God create. God doesn't create out of any need. And so each unique life is suited to tell something unique about God because God is about the work of showing himself. He's about the work of manifestation. And so each human person is somehow suited to show something of the divine life because we're all the overflow of God's love and we're all destined to return to him in love. And so when we think about life, we're thinking about not just an ordinary being like a rock or not just an ordinary living thing like a plant or an animal, but something with a capacity for God, something with a peculiar capacity for God because we can know him with his own knowledge of himself and we can love him with his own love of himself. So I think any anytime we talk about life, we're thinking in terms of the image of God. And um, <clears throat> maybe we could talk about this, uh, how this, how this give rise, gives rise to a, a kind of insight into creation. So if all things are from God and all things are for God, 
how can we approach life in such a way that reflects that adequately? How might we craft an ethic of life? The, yeah, the, the important, I think, transition into sort of understanding sort of from a philosophical point of what life is and then, you know, over into the pro-life uh, movement and appreciating that is that is is recognizing and often some or sometimes in difficult circumstances that the principles that you just laid out um, apply to all life not not sort of the convenient life or not you know always the easy life whether that's at the beginning of life end of life these sorts of things this, this principle the ability for the person to image God to know and to love ultimately the Creator um, is is inherent in in each in each being. And um, I I like to say sometimes that, you know, God doesn't create to frustrate, that he doesn't um, make us in such a way that, um, that, that, that pursuit of him, that happiness, that fulfillment cannot be achieved by, by his grace. Um, This is, this is really important to remember in, you know, within our own lives, but also when we look at, look at the issue of abortion or unwanted pregnancies or creating a culture of life is that the Lord creates us in such a way that we can pursue him and know him despite the circumstances. Um, and that, that, that redounds to his glory, that redounds to his love for us, that it's um, often in spite of or because of uh, various circumstances, trials, these sorts of things that, w- that we can actually experience his, his mercy and his love all the more so. Yeah, I, li- I like especially the theme of mercy. So creation is somehow intended for mercy. I think some people have it in their mind that creation is intended for equality, like we're all equally entitled to enjoy the benefits of creation. But that doesn't seem to be the case uh, because God chooses to create a variety of things. But by choosing to create a variety of things, um, I might be better than someone else in some regard, and they might be better than me in another regard. But with those inequalities comes an opportunity for mercy. So mercy, as St. Thomas understands it, is when you perceive someone else's misery, and then you work to alleviate it. So I see that my brother is laboring under the weight of a philosophy term paper, and he has 15 pages to write, and he has to read 12 sources and outline them, and maybe, maybe... one of those things is in a language that he can't read. Um, maybe he's uh, a Dominican friar from another province who's come to study here, and English is a second language, and I have the opportunity to help him with that. So beyond, by virtue of the fact that I know English, I can exhibit a kind of mercy, so I can see his miserable state, and I can work to alleviate it to help him work through that text. But it might also be the case that he's a billion times holier than I, and so he can be merciful in my regard, and maybe in return fast for me on a Friday and apply the the merits of that choice to the sanctification of my family or to the fruitfulness of my apostolate. So by virtue of the fact that we're made unequally and that some of us are in miserable circumstances, there is greater occasion for love. And there's greater occasion for us to go to God together, implicated in friendships, implicated in relationships, which draw us in bonds of charity unto God who is himself love subsisting. So life isn't about being independent or life isn't about being the best and isolated from the rest. It's rather being bound up within or tethered to other people in such a way that we go to God together. So as we wrap up, maybe some final thoughts, things that you would encourage people on the way uh, as they think about building up a culture of life in their own heart, in their home, in their community, and what they might do practically to take steps 
to bring that into action? I think the the sort of examples that we've put forth, whether it be um, the priest in New York or the Sisters of Life or the lady adopting children, all of these people bear witness to the reality that each of us have, this sounds kind of cheesy, corny, whatever, but each of us has a part to play. And it's true. And that part is often less what we say um, and, and more of the way in which we live live our lives, the intentionality and the example, really, that we put forth. Um, so we may be, you know, as, as Catholics or as pro-lifers labeled as some sort of bigot or anti-women or these sorts of things, but it's, it's how we live our lives, both um, how we sort of give the example, but also the, the part that we take, whether that be being able to adopt a thousand babies and attach them on you and walk around, you know, that <laughs> kind of thing, whether it's wearing boots or black mm. shoes at the March for Life or, you know, offering prayers and um, sacrifices, penances, these sorts of things for um, the conversion of the world. I think to, to think that any of those sorts of things can be discounted from um, God's plan and creation is is wholly foolish. Um, God God uses all of these and uses them well, dare I say. He's God after all. Mm. My last thought would be this, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that the order of the resurrection is Christ the first fruits, and then all those who belong to him. So we worship a God who lives and that by growth in prayer, in reception of the sacraments, by penance, by study, by Christian friendships, we can grow in the grace of Jesus Christ, we can cultivate virtues, we can exercise better the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we are more and more conformed to a God who lives. So I think that a pro-life vocation is first of all a contemplative vocation because it's a matter of being in living touch with the Lord so that he can shape us into people suited for whatever work lies ready at hand, uh, but ultimately that he can draw us closer to himself so that the quality of our lives and the quality of our testimony proves attractive for those who might not otherwise discover the Lord, but for you know our witness if God so so chooses to use it. So with that, Go ahead and share this episode with somebody who you think could benefit from a different perspective on the pro-life movement, maybe somebody who's exhausted with culture wars and would like to hear a philosophy of life in terms of vocation. Uh, So go ahead and share it with somebody whom you think could benefit, somebody whom you think could benefit from the conversation. And with that, we hope you have a, uh, a blessed day and a blessed week, and we look forward to chatting with you again next time on Godsplaining. Thanks for listening to God's Planning, a work of the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.